Well, it is with joy that we gather and contemplate the wondrous blessings of our God. Amen. Pulpit Committee has diligently served and we are praying and excited about this event, December 5th. And it's not so much that we want to make a good showing on him that you be here. He already knows about you. It's that we want you to be able to hear him, meet his wife and others. That's all I'll say. But praise God, praise God. This past week, our dear brother Virgil experienced the death of his beloved wife. They had been married almost 60 years. Ian Smith and I, Ian helped me, came on a Wednesday night and um, sat beside the bedside, read scripture, prayed for Virgil, for grace, and then sat with Virgil a while longer. And then it was at 2.45 that morning that the father called her home. (laughs) Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his godly ones, his saints, his children. So we rejoice in this and pray strength for Virgil. There are many other needs and, might I say, heavinesses within the church, things that people are walking through And accordingly, it's a challenging. But turn with me in your Bibles as we approach this time to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Where we are given a good word, a good word of encouragement from the Father that I pray speaks to you. Verse 16, 1 Peter 4, let's jump into the middle. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, for in that name let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment. Judgment, separations. Separations by God. Is a heavy concept there. To begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If there is a societal meltdown, what will it be like for those who don't know God? And yes, it will be a time of distress and uncertainty as we look with physical eyes upon the temporal plane. But our feet are upon the rock which is Christ. And thy rock doth not ebb but thy sea. It is the sea that ebbs and flows but not thy rock. Then he says in verse 19, 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God. Ah, what's that? Affliction? Hardship? Uncertainties? Unanswered prayer? Unanswered love? Whatever the suffering or distress that the believer is walking through, let those who suffer according to the will of God, well, it is by his will that these things come. He permits them or causes them. Let them entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. <laughs> it really is a lot simpler than some of us think because duties are ours, yes, but events, that's the Lord's. So you just do your duty, sir, and leave the result, let the consequences be in the hands of God. Just do your duty, ma'am, and let the result, let the consequences be in the hands of God, because duties are ours. But events, the orchestration of our lives, and do you see it in the church? The orchestration of this church has so clearly been by the hand of God. I rejoice. I rejoice in this. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the blessed privilege of opening thy word. Thank you for the joy of seeing <laughs> the impact upon the apostles as they beheld the risen Christ. Father, speak through this text. Speak and bring us to John's purpose, to the Spirit's outbreathed purpose in this book, to make the confession and thus find the gift of eternal life. Humbly we pray in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 20, John 20, and I will ask you to stand for the reading of the word. This is verses 19 through 31. John 20, and you'll recall that this is immediately following the master's revealing of himself to Mary and the joy that happened there. Verse 19. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first of the week, so Sunday, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus therefore said to them again, Peace with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have previously been forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they have previously been retained. 24. 
But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, were saying to him, What a church service! Well, application later. We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were inside. And Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Shalom with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side. Be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and the God of me. Jesus said to him, Because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. O oh, Father, take our stubborn, hard hearts and soften us, that we might with the ears of faith Hear thy word, hear thy voice, and respond and not stubbornly resist because of the love of sin. Help us to yield to you and speak, O Master, through thy word. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I do not take it as coincidence <clears throat> that here the Lord has graced me to preach through the Gospel of John and you have received the preaching of the Gospel of John <laughs> and we are just about at the conclusion. How interesting is his providential timing? All praise. So we come to the climaxing passage, truly, theologically, the climaxing passage in John's Gospel. Gloriously, we've walked through the pages of this sublimest of Gospels, last of the four records of the life of Jesus Christ. And we recall that the Gospel of John, coupled with Romans, rise together like the Mount Everest and K2 in terms of New Testament theology. You might need, you know what Mount Everest is. You might need to look up K2. It's right beside it, incredible mountain. But that's John and Romans. And indeed, this virtual cathedral of the New Testament reveals Depths unplumbed by the other Gospels. 
For as Calvin said, since they all, the four Gospels, have the same object to show forth Christ, the first three, if I may put it this way, reveal his body. But John shows his soul. And nowhere do we sense the soul of Jesus more than the final discourse, chapters 14 through 17. We recall also that the prologue to the book, the first 18 verses, establishes the musical harmonies, as it were, which will be sounded thematically throughout. And if there is one central melody interwoven with a tightly structured harmony, it is found two times in the prologue. That central melody to the gospel is the deity of Jesus Christ. John 1, 1 opens boldly. In the beginning was the word, and the word was face to face with God, and the word was God in the beginning. Verse 14 continues and establishes who we are talking about, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus Christ. And then verse 18, so the book ends, verse 1 and verse 18. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained or exegeted, like exegesis, him. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, who as the eternal Son of God, the Father, became also flesh, became also a man, that he might become the second Adam, replacing Adam the first, who as the one mediator between God and man, might ransom, save all those gifted to him by the Father. And Christ is utterly unique, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, say it with me, not made, however we understand begotten, not made, being of one substance, one nature, one essence, with the Father, by whom all things were made. So Christ Jesus in his person is fully God and fully man, creator and creature, inseparably joined together forever. The second person of the Trinity will be a man in the flesh, in heaven, forever on our behalf. That is mind-blowing that the eternal God should love us so much as that before creation to foreordain that one of the subsistences, that's theological language, one of the persons of the Trinity 
will become part of this creation and remain part of that creation to rule over that creation, those redeemed. This is just beyond anything that we could have dreamed up. So John's Gospel says and shows forth evidences for all this. And today this glorious gospel reaches its, its melodic impact climax, a doctrinal one, which mirrors the bookends of the prologue, which established, and the word was God, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, verse 18 of chapter 1. Today, John's gospel in this chapter, in Thomas's confession, verse 28, bookends that which John set out to do. And again, bigger picture, theologically. John's gospel was written, he says this in the last verse that we just read, that we might believe, that we might faith, that we might trust into Jesus as the Son of God. John will return under tutelage, guidance, inspiration by the Holy Spirit and write the first epistle, which was written to the church, not so that we will believe, but so that we will know that we have eternal life, assurance of salvation. Beautiful, beautiful capstone by the Spirit of God to the gospel record in the fourth gospel. So from chapter 1, 1 to 118 to 2028, Jesus the man is portrayed as God. Forever he now has two natures, one uncreated deity, the other created manhood, to become one of us, our brother in the flesh. The wonder of the bounteous overflow of the triune God's love for us to so embrace this fallen, rebellious planet making us sons and daughters forever. <laughs> glory, glory in Emmanuel's land forever, brothers and sisters. Well, verses 19 through 20 of chapter 20, verses 19 through 20, how would we describe it? Joy, that's it. The apostle now shows how the resurrection of Christ was first manifested to the apostles, to the disciples, and observe the clear providence of God that they were all, save one, gathered together in one place. Consider also the tender mercy of Jesus, not prolonging their fear and uncertainty and just distress that, that here our hope is shattered. He comes to them in the evening of the first day. May I suggest Christ not only cares about our doctrine, he cares also about our hearts. 
Because if all you got is doctrine, the demons have that. Pharisees excel at it. If all Christ cares about is our doctrine, no, that's just not true. He cares about the impact of that doctrine in his person on your heart and how you are coping, how you are living with pain, living with suffering, living with affliction, living with things aren't like I hoped they would be. He cares for us. Christ is our tenderly compassionate shepherd. (laughs) He loves us as much as his father loves us. He even prayed in the high priestly prayer that the love wherewith you, Father, have loved me might be in us. I pray it is. Well, Jesus just suddenly appears standing in their midst and in the Hebrew says, Shalom, peace be with you. This expression is the normal salutation among Jews and it basically means that all the cheerfulness and prosperity that is desired in life, may it be yours, may you be well, may you prosper. Christ then shows them both hands and side, and the disciples rejoiced. He whom they saw expire, bleed out on the cross, was standing radiantly glowing his face, his eyes twinkling joy in their hearts. Turn back to 16 and recall what he had said in 1620. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice I'll bet the Sanhedrin went home and got stone cold drunk. Had a good time. Rejoiced. Truly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your, joy, your heart will rejoice and no one takes your joy from you. Yes, the disciples wept. They wept bitterly. Remember Peter going out in the dark? Their hopes gone, their hearts, all that their hearts had indicated who he was came crashing down. Disillusioned, they they clung to one another, not knowing what to do. And suddenly they see their blessed master and their hearts rejoice. Might this have ultimate application for the child of God who passing from this life in death is placed 
by angelic arms immediately in the presence of sweet, sweet Jesus, whose face glows with joy, whose eyes twinkle warmly as he embraces his child, displaying delighted joy that his child has come home forever. Oh, what joy awaits us when we depart this sinful, suffering world to be with our beloved Savior. They rejoiced. We shall also rejoice beholding his joy-filled face of love. Well, verses 21 through 23 in John 20. Again, he says, peace be with you. But he then adds, as the Father has sent me, I also, excuse me, send you. It's either telling me this is a lousy sermon or, let me just deal with this. All right. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. To understand the magnitude of this statement by Christ, we've got to be aware of what was the self-perception of Jesus. With what self-image did Jesus live and move and minister out of? And to read through this gospel, as has been my experience on numerous occasions, is to be overwhelmed by the fact it's almost as if Christ cannot speak the word pater, father. He cannot speak the word father without the addendum, who sent me. He will say that three, four times in the space of three verses. And you think, the disciples are scratching their head. Yes, we, we know the father sent you. Why do you keep telling us? In fact, so huge is this that John 17, where we would think the master would pray, Father, that they may believe that I am the Savior. That's not what he says in John 17, verse 21. He prays to the Father so that the world may believe that you sent me. 1723, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and you loved them as you loved me. 1725, Righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. You cannot encounter this scripture without realizing something very significant in the self-understanding of Christ, and the understanding of the Father is being said here. Have you ever reflected on that? Surely, from these self-descriptive statements, Christ makes it clear that a fundamental part of his self-perception is the concept of having been sent by the Father. 
And then he says, Peace be to you, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Mm. That is the climax, the apex. Well, Christ here installs the apostles in the office he had previously appointed to them. He had sent them out as heralds, you will recall, to announce that the teacher should be heard. Christ has now fulfilled, he has discharged his office, his prophetic office. He now confers on them the same fundamental office. And this is what Paul meant in Ephesians 4 that he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastor-teachers. Calvin is helpful here. Listen. Christ testifies that though he held a temporary office of teaching, still the preaching of the gospel is perpetual, The preaching of the gospel is to be perpetual. And that his doctrine may not have less authority in the mouth of the apostles, he bids them succeed to that office that he had received from the Father and bestows on them the same authority. But he does not place them in the highest authority as teachers because the Father vested that in Christ only. He is presently our prophet, priest, and king. So while he spoke with his mouth as long as he was on the earth, he then continued to speak to the apostles. This he promised, track with me, this he promised in the final discourse would occur through the ministration of the spirit of truth who would breathe out New Testament scripture, that's inspiration, would then providentially oversee the inscripturation as the apostles wrote down what they preached, and then down through this age of grace provide illumination to those who sit underneath the preached word of God and who pick up their Bible and read with others or alone. Consider the doctrinal depth then of verse 23. The New American says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. The tight translation, as I read when I read it aloud, is if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have previously been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have previously been retained. I'm digressing from my notes momentarily, but that was more puzzling to me as an Armenian than it is Reformed. Because I well understand that if anyone's sins have been forgiven, it's because the Father chose them. 
It's because the Father chose them and quickened them in the time of his choosing. So, of course, under the preaching of the gospel, their sins have already been. I get that. But let's continue. The power of forgiveness of sins must not be separated from the teaching office. In fact, the principal design of preaching the gospel is that men may be reconciled to God. And this is accomplished through the unconditional pardon of sin, as Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 5, of the gospel being the ministry of reconciliation. Now, many other things, Calvin, I'm paraphrasing, are contained in the gospel. But the principal object which God intends to accomplish is to receive men into favor by not imputing their sins against them because he imputed them to Christ on the cross. Faithful ministers of the gospel will give most earnest attention to this subject. For the chief difference between the gospel and heathen philosophy is that the gospel makes the salvation of men to be the forgiveness of sins through free grace. That's quote Calvin, that's quote scripture. The gospel is a free grace. It's not so much that it's free to us, though that's true. But by free grace, we mean he was utterly free in whom he would bestow it on. This is the source of other blessings which God bestows, such as God enlightens us, regenerates us by his spirit, gradually forms us into his image, the image of Christ, arms us with unshakable firmness against the world and Satan. Thus, the whole doctrine of godliness and the spiritual building of the church rest on this foundation, that God has acquitted us from all sins and has adopted us to be his children by his free grace. That should produce joy in your heart and that should produce deep gratitude and a desire to be obedient and a loathing of your sin, a hatred of your sin. How can you love Jesus and love sin? Thus, when Christ enjoins the apostles to forgive sins, he does not give to them what belongs to God alone, the forgiveness of sins. It is God who forgives sins through the apostles and ministers. When, when the scripture was read in the assurance of pardon, it is not Larry pardoning you. It is God through the scripture pardoning the sinner who is coming penitently. Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. 
We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. (laughs) That word ambassadors is an interesting word. It's literally the same word, presbyteroi, presbyterian, older men. Hmm. We are older men for Christ, as though God were making an appeal to us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, listen carefully. This is, again, Calvin, quote. We now see the reason Christ commended and adorned the ministry he bestows upon the apostles. It is that believers be fully convinced that when they hear the voice of the man, the preacher, the TE, the new senior pastor, when they hear the voice of men offering through the gospel the forgiveness of sins, it is God stretching out his hand to you. Nor ought we, this is Calvin, nor ought we esteem less highly this treasure because it is exhibited in earthen vessels. Whenever truth speaks, it has spoken. It doesn't matter through what mouth. Calvin says, Nor ought we esteem less highly this treasure because it is exhibited in earthen vessels. But we have ground of thanksgiving to God who has conferred on men so high an honor as to make them ambassadors and deputies of God and of his Son in declaring You may have forgiveness of sins. Christ has died for you. Calvin adds this, and it's applicable in our day. It was intensely applicable in his day, the contrast between scriptural teaching and Roman Catholicism. He says, Christ does not here appoint confessors to inquire minutely into each sin by means of low mutterings. He appoints preachers of his gospel who shall cause the voice to be heard and who shall seal on the hearts of believers the grace of the atonement obtained through Christ. Verses 24 through 29 explain. The unbelief of Thomas is here given that by the faith of the godly may be, that the faith of the godly may more, be more fully confirmed. Now, this is my paraphrase of some significant pastoral insight that I've gained from reading Calvin this week. Listen to it. Because it should impact you. And how some of you might view yourself. And how a bunch of us should view others that we find ourselves looking at. 
The obstinacy of Thomas is an example to show that this wicked is, wickedness is almost natural to all men, which retards them when the doorway to faith is opened. God is opposed to the proud. He hates pride, but gives grace to the humble. Calvin. And so God causes the stubborn heart to languish in its rigidity and its belief that it may be more astonished at the wonder of free grace. Someday. Thus it happens that when we give to the word of God less honor than is due, there steals upon us without our knowledge a growing stiffness, hardness, obstinacy, which brings with it a contempt of the word of God and makes us lose all reverence for it. Some of us in this room do not reverence the word of God. Our behavior shows that. Some of us in this room, by loving the sin that we're involved in, have little to no reverence for this scripture. It's hard to read the scripture. Well, of course it is. How can you eat from two antithetical plates? Calvin again. The abruptness of the exclamation by Thomas, my Lord and my God, the God of me, reveals that shame compelled him to break out in confession, condemning his own stupidity. Calvin. King David is an excellent example here. Calvin cites him. And just listen, because you know the story of King David, who was permitted by God to gratify his lust without restraint for a season of time. This man, after God's own heart, lives in homicidal rape, murderous adultery, in the sight of all. And yet by a short rebuke by the prophet, he is suddenly recalled to life. I have sinned. And Nathan responds and says, your sins have been forgiven. Wow. From this, Calvin, from this we may infer that some spark though it had been choked, still remained in him, speedily bursting into flame when awakened by grace. <laughs> Judgment does not awaken joy. Judgment just condemns. Grace awakens joy. It's just a systemic observation to theology and the Christian life. Calvin here is wonderful as he relates two men, two men, that they are so guilty as if they had renounced the faith and all the grace of the Holy Spirit. 
but the infinite goodness of God prevents the elect from falling so low as to be entirely alienated from God. We ought therefore to be most zealous not to fall from faith. Don't put your family in such distress to not fall from faith. And yet we are to believe that God restrains his chosen by a secret bridle that they may not fall to their destruction and that he always cherishes miraculously in their hearts some sparks of faith which at the proper time he kindles anew by the breath of his spirit. Some of us with adult children need to hear that. Some of us need to perhaps not give up all hope, but continue to pray that somewhere down the road, the breath of the Spirit will spark that, that spark, breathe fire and life into it. Though we must confess that an obstinate and hard heart, while it might be found in one of God's chosen, will leave a wake of destruction in his or her path, though they may be saved. So Thomas, having acknowledged Christ to be his Lord, is immediately carried upwards to his eternal divinity. For this reason, Christ descended to us, that he might be exalted gloriously to the right hand of the Father, that he might raise us up to behold him in his glory. Do you remember what Stephen said as he's dying? I see the Son of Man standing. Wow. Thus, I had never read this before. Calvin quotes a saying, thus, he, thus it is justly said that by Christ man we are conducted to Christ God. Yes! You see, since the progressive nature of the revelation in the incarnation. By Christ the man, we are progressively led to see and fall down before Christ the God, saying, my Lord and my God. Hmm. So because our faith grows by divine nurturance, Perceiving Christ the man, Sunday school teachers, here be your goal with those little ones. You want them to see Christ the man. Oh, you expose them at every scriptural encounter to Christ the God. But they must first come to love Jesus. And loving Jesus, one day bow my Lord and my God. 
doctrine. Well, first doctrine that is in verses 21-22 is on the appointment of ministers, pastors, teachers. Christ breathed on them, and Calvin's thought, I think, is good, because not one of the sons of men is qualified to discharge so difficult an office. And therefore Christ prepares the apostles for it by the grace of his Spirit. You need to pray for your pastors. You need to pray for your pastor today. But you need to pray for the pastor the Lord we believe is sending to us. It is not possible to do that work of ministry in one's own power. Indeed, to govern the church of God, to carry the embassy of eternal salvation, to erect the kingdom of God on earth, to raise men and women to heaven, is a task far beyond human capacity. And we need not be as astonished that no man is found qualified, competent to discharge faithfully and honestly all the duties of so excellent an office. But again, this is Calvin, it is the glory of Christ to form, to shape those whom he appoints to be teachers of his church. For the reason why the fullness of the Spirit has been poured out upon him is that he may bestow upon each person according to a certain measure. And though Christ continues to be the chief shepherd of the church, he must display and does display the power of his Spirit as he ministers. He calls, through the ministers, he calls and places. And this John records in the symbol of Christ breathing upon the apostles. This past session meeting, we read first, then prayed out of 1 Peter 5, where Peter enjoins, this is 1 Peter 5, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. <clears throat> Brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ is thy chief shepherd. Thus, the posture of under-shepherds is one of humility. The posture of under-shepherds of necessity is one of 
humility. Arrogance or pride in a man is an automatic disqualification, and that at a systemic level of basic Christian maturity. Calvin says, those whom Christ calls to the pastoral office, he likewise adorns with necessary gifts that they may be qualified for discharging the office, or at least may not come to it empty and unprovided. It has been through the affliction with which he has struck me that he has mercifully taken me to new depths of knowledge of him, love for him. Though I was a hospice chaplain for three years, I have never tended those dying or suffering through such at the level and depth that I have now. He is good, and as he prepared me, he will prepare the senior pastor. Believe it. He is faithful. So Calvin continues, a sure criterion is here laid for judging of the calling of those who govern the church of God. And that criterion is if we see that they have received the Holy Spirit. That's end quote. But in our day, for a man to say I've received the Holy Spirit could mean many different things. And how might we ask, shall we know if a man is filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, surely... A first level of recognition should be, do we see the fruit of the Spirit in that man's speech and behavior? Does he look, behave, and sound like a man of love, a man of joy, a man of peace, a man of patience, a man of kindness, a man of goodness? a man of faithfulness, a man of gentleness, a man of self-control. Here be at a first rudimentary level how one perceives someone in whom is the Holy Spirit. Second doctrine, John's confession, Thomas's confession, which is John's purpose in writing. So John has brought us from, and the word was God to, and the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him, bookends of the prologue. Taking us from that first bookend to Thomas's confession where John shows that the whole purpose of this gospel was to enable the Spirit of God to move upon the readers and the hearers underneath the preached gospel to say with Thomas, my Lord and the God of me. Have you? 
Have you come to the foot of the cross and made confession like this? Is he your Lord? Is he your sovereign, your master? Is he your God? Is he your savior? Do you love him? Application. When the disciples saw the risen Lord, how did their hearts respond? Well, they rejoiced to see the man. And this week, who knows how many Christians have passed into eternity, but we know of one. And there's dear family, a father of Scott, whose grave you and Chris visited this morning. What joy to be ushered into the presence of Jesus. Now, you're a disembodied spirit, yes, but we can recognize each other. Ask me about that later. But I don't have flesh, but this man in front of me is in the flesh, and his face betrays no effect of iniquity or transgression or sin. He's smiling. He embraces me. There is joy. Is this your experience of Jesus? Oh, I pray. Father, please touch. Touch the heavy heart. Touch the wounded heart. Touch those who are struggling with un requited love. Touch the one who is angry at you, who views you in a hard way. Touch the one that's scared. Touch the one that's bereaved. Touch those who are heavy from doing what is right and continuing so. Master, let us see thy joy radiantly shining upon us as we make the good confession that John's gospel trajectories toward thou art our Lord and our God. Amen.